This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Weeks on this wonderful uh, letter to the Christians of the Church of Ephesus. Now, the title of my message today is Never Forget the Bull You Were Baked In. And that's an old country saying where I come from, which simply means when you get too big for your boots or you get full of yourself, remember where you came from. All right? Never forget the bull you were baked in. Successful people remain humble people when they never forget the bull they were baked in. You may better appreciate what you have when you remember where you came from. The church at Ephesus was largely a Gentile church, although there were Jewish Christians in membership too. And at times this would lead to all kinds of friction and tension between them because Jews and Gentiles for centuries traditionally really never got on. And even when they get saved, born again, a lot of those old prejudices And a lot of those ill feelings still remain because of their different and various traditions. And so the second half of the book of, uh, chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians, Paul is dealing with that particular issue that from time to time would arise and sometimes threaten the split churches. And so he's, in a lovely way, he's dealing with that. And and Paul had just finished telling the Gentile believers uh, the blessings they had received. He had shown them their past, their present, and their future. And he's telling them this now so that they don't get too big for their boots to remember the bowl they were baked in. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he reminded them of their past, that they were dead in trespasses and sins. Then verse 4 and 6 that then they were made alive in Christ, made to sit together with him in heavenly places. That's their present. And in their future, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. So he reminds them of their past, present, future. Then verse 8 and 10, they were saved by grace through faith. So that's what made it all possible. So then verse 11 is where we're going to begin this morning. Verse 11 begins with, Therefore, And as we always say, when you see the word therefore, look to see what it's there for. And so it's there for a reason. And the reason is just what he has told them. It follows on from that. Because of all what God has has done for them, he wants to remind them about where they came from, the bull they were baked in. And so these next few verses to the end of chapter 2 is all about identity our identity in Christ. God has given us a new identity, both Jew and Gentile. First half of chapter 2 is about our possessions in Christ, what we possess in Christ. Second half is about our position in Christ, how we stand, our identity. Now, God had singled out the Jews as a people for himself among all of the nations. And Amos 3.2 you only have I known of all the families of the earth. And it would be through them that God would, in a sense, showcase 
his power and his glory and his ways and his mercies. It was through them. And he made them very, very distinct people among the nations. You know, their religion and their laws and their customs and their dietary laws and their rites and their rituals and their prophets and their priests and, and, and all of those things made them very much stand out among all the other pagan godless nations around them. And so they were to be a holy people, a sanctified people, a people among all of the nations that was set apart for God's glory. They were the ones who was to worship the true and the living God. Now remember, it was to them, it was to Israel, it was to the Jews that God gave his laws. And they were to write them down and they were to learn them and practice them and to do them because they were to be a witness. They were God's witness to the other nations around them. That's what they were supposed to do. However, sadly, they failed miserably for the most part in doing that. And instead, they became puffed up with pride that they were God's chosen people. And they liked to remind the Gentiles that they were God's chosen people and that they were just old pagans, but they were God's people. And so instead of interacting and being a witness to those that God had called them to be a witness to, instead they would isolate themselves and put the Gentiles down instead of reaching out and being a witness as God wanted. And so the result of all of that was very obviously that the Jews hated the Gentiles and the feeling was quite mutual. They really did. Jews despised Gentiles because they were God's people and the Gentiles weren't. That wasn't what God's intention was. His intention was to say, yeah, we are God's people, but let me show you what God is truly like. Let me show you his love and his mercy. Let me show you his goodness. But they didn't do that. And now, in the church at Ephesus, the pendulum was in danger of swinging the opposite way. Because the Gentiles in this church are now in the ascendancy. And so Paul was wanting to remind them and us as Gentiles that he's now no respecter of persons. That Christ has changed all of that. Jesus came on the scene and all of that began to change. And so our nationality, our color, our creed, or sorry, our gender, our social status has no bearing whatsoever on who we are in Christ. In Galatians 3.28, neither is there Jew nor Greek nationality. Neither, there is neither slave nor free social standing status. Neither is there male or female gender, for you are all one in Christ. Now, even after the church exploded into being on the day of Pentecost and then began to grow enormously from that point on, even after all of that, there were still these prejudices and animosities between the Jews and the Gentiles. The gospel was for the Jew first. And they never imagined that this gospel that they had received 
could possibly be for the Gentiles. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God made it clear that he wanted to reach the Gentiles. But whenever the Jews got this gospel and changed their lives, they automatically thought, well, that's just another blessing of God for us, but it's not for them. But it was for them too. But initially, God gave it to the Jew first because he wanted them to get the option first, for them to get it first, and then for them to take it to the Gentiles. But again, instead, they get proud and they get puffed up and didn't really want anything to do with the Gentiles. And so, God always planned to reach the Gentiles. Do you remember old Simeon when he was dedicating uh, little Jesus, eight-day-old Jesus in the temple? Remember what he said? Luke 2, 29 and 32. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. And so Simeon, speaking prophetically here at the dedication, said that Christ has come not just to be glory to the people of Israel, but a light to lighten the Gentiles, a revelation to the Gentiles. Remember Mark 7 where the Syrophoenician woman came to Jesus and her little daughter had a demon. And Jesus said, you know, she wanted Jesus to do something about this. But remember what Jesus said. He said, it's not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, dogs was a derogatory term that Jews used for Gentiles. They were dogs as far as they were concerned. And it's not that Jesus was, that wouldn't be his normal everyday language, but he was testing this woman. Now, it, it wouldn't overly surprise her that a Jew would call her a dog because she was a Gentile. She probably got that all her life. But Jesus was testing her. And her answer was absolutely brilliant, wasn't it? But Lord, she said, that's true. Yeah, that's right. In other words, we're not people of covenant. That's right. But even the little puppies get to eat the crumbs that falls from the master's table. And Jesus drew that out of her, that faith out of her. And he says, woman, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she went home, she discovered at that very moment that's when it happened. Whenever Jesus sent out his disciples, the 12, Matthew 10, to share this good news, he said, don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel because it was to the Jew first. Now, of course, he had in mind to reach the Gentiles, but first of all, he wanted to reach the Jews, give them the option, give them the choice. He wanted them to receive this and then for them to go out and to reach the Gentiles. It was to the Jew first. However, the Jews rejected Jesus and they rejected the disciples and the apostles and they rejected the message that they brought. And so God rejected them. Not totally, not completely, not forever, because in Romans 11, Paul says, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. And then he goes into a whole message about how God was drawing them and bringing them back. And so 
initially this is what happened. But of course, you remember Jesus said when the disciples would be filled with the Holy Ghost and Pentecost, then the message would go out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which they hated, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So that was always in the heart of God, but they were to receive this message first. Now that's the way that it was for quite a number of years. The early church was quite content and happy to receive this gospel for themselves. And those Jews, they wanted Christ, they would be happy to keep it for themselves, but they had no notion of taking it to the Gentiles. It was to the Jew. It was for them. And they were quite content to stay in Jerusalem and to evangelize among the Jews there. But God's intention was that they would go further afield. And when persecution came, then they had to go further afield. But it's not until you come to chapter 10 of the book of Acts till you see this great breakthrough into the Gentile world. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 10? You remember Cornelius, that great Roman centurion, and Caesarea, that, that man who had become a proselyte, he had accepted the Jewish religion and was worshiping the one true and living God. And you remember how in, in prayer, how an angel appeared to him and said, Cornelius, your arms, you've been given to the, to the people and you've been blessing them and you've helped, given money to the temple and so forth. The arms has come up before God as a testimony for you. Now, I want you to send for Peter. He's at Joppa and he's at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. Send for him and he's going to tell you something. And so he got two of his trusted servants and he got one of his most trusted soldiers, three of them, and they set off to find Peter. And when they, when the day that uh, they arrived at, at Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house, Peter was up on the, on the, on the roof because he was waiting his dinner being made. He was up on the roof relaxing and he had a vision, he had a dream of this great sheet that came down and it was full of all kinds of stuff that any Jew would never eat. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, slay and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. <laughs> you know, I'm a Jew. That's not kosher. I can't eat that. That's against the dietary laws. You know that. Why? Is it? You know, that? there was this conversation going on. And it happened three times. And God says, that which I have cleansed, don't you call on common? And then suddenly, these three men appeared at the door looking for him. And he knew then, this is God. This is God saying, these men are not unclean. You better go with them. And so him and some of his friends, they went to the house of Cornelius. And when they got to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius actually, can you imagine this, a Roman soldier, a centurion, no less? He bows down in front of Peter. Imagine bowing down in front of a Jew. And Peter says, get up. He says, I'm just a man. I'm not a god. I'm just a man. And then he started to share with Cornelius and Cornelius' house, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he began to share that gospel with them, suddenly the Holy Ghost came. The Holy Ghost came, and they started, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and started to speak in tongues, just the way it happened the day of Pentecost. And Peter and those that were with him were absolutely astounded 
And then they realized, hey, God is in this. There's the evidence. God is in this thing. This is God's doing. God is reaching into the Gentile world. And of course, that caused a whole furore back in Jerusalem when they actually called Peter and his friends to give an explanation. And they said, you being a Jew, actually go into the household of a Gentile and a Roman centurion at that because they would not eat with any Gentile. A Jew would never eat with a Gentile. And then he told them what happened about the vision and the dream and Cornelius and the Holy Ghost come. And then they realized this is God. This truly is God in action here. And so when you go into chapter 11, it tells us here, uh, if I can just read right down verse 18. And when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Ah, for the first time in years, since Pentecost really, they began to understand that it wasn't just to the Jew. It was to the Gentile. It was to the whole world. The gospel of Christ is for every man, every man, every woman, every nationality. In chapter 15 of the book of Acts, there was those in the church at this time called Judaizers and they were insisting if you want to be a Christian you're going to have to basically become a Jew first then you can be a Christian and to prove that you want to be a Jew first then you're going to have to become circumcised because that was the great mark of the Jew. And again, that caused a whole lot of problems because the Apostle Paul was having none of it. None of it. He was preaching the gospel of grace. And so there was a great big church council held at Jerusalem. And Peter was there, and James was there, and Paul was there, and Barnabas was there. They're all there. All the big leaders were there to thrash this out. And, and having discussed it, uh, and Peter telling the story again about going to Cornelius and Paul and, and, and his companions telling their story about the miracles that was God was doing among the Gentiles and how they were getting saved and, and born again of God's spirit. And then they realized, no, this is truly God. You do not have to become circumcised to be born again of God's spirit. But whenever you read on through that, uh, they agreed, no, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to uh, do the dietary laws. You don't have to do your rites and rituals uh, to be a Christian. You just need to trust Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace through faith. But, but, don't eat anything strangled. Don't drink anything blood. And no fornication, uh, none of that. Keep yourself sexually pure. That's all. That's the only restrictions. But as far as those laws and those rites and those rituals, no, you don't have to do any. If you're a Gentile, you come to faith in Christ, you're saved by grace through faith, you belong to Christ. Now, that's where Paul now in Ephesians is dealing with this issue because now you see the Gentiles are getting puffed up because they're saying, you see, we didn't need all of that. We're not like you lot with all those laws and all those restrictions and all those diets and all those rights and all those... We, we don't need any of that. God has received us just the way we are. 
And there's a danger that they had forgotten the bowl they were baked in. So Paul's wanting to remind them too. So are you still with me? All right. I know you have to think a little bit here as we go through this. And so, why is this important for us today? Why is it important for us right now to be reminded of all of this? You say, well, see, you can be tempted to say, well, David, that was 2,000 years ago. That was to do with Jews and Gentiles. But I mean, I, I'm saved today. Do I really need to think about that? Yes, you do. This is why the Holy Spirit has made sure this is in Scripture for us to know and understand and to realize the reason behind this. We too are never to forget the bowl that we were baked in both as Gentiles in relationship to Jews. A large segment of the church believes in replacement theology. The church has replaced the Jews in God's affections. And God has finished with the Jews and Israel. Now it's only the church. And that's why Paul said in Romans 11, I said a moment ago, has God cast off the Jew? No, certainly not because he still has got a great plan for them, all right? And that's why we as believers above all people on earth should be the ones reaching out to Jews and telling them and showing them the love of God that Christ has given us. And people are doing that. And this is why we support ICEJ. And this is why we have people coming through here to remind us of this relationship. And also... Uh, this relationship, not just between Jews and Gentiles, which we are, but between us as believers and relationship to other believers. And us in relationship to unbelievers. Because oftentimes there are divisions and barriers between us and believers, other believers, and between us and unbelievers. But if you remember where Christ found you, you remember how we are one in Christ Jesus. So let's now with that in mind, let's look here from verse 11 onwards. Notice here just how bad our situation was before God found us and we met Christ because we were Gentiles. Let's see how alienated we were from Christ and from one another. Verse 12 says, we were without Christ. At least the Jews had an expectation of the Messiah to come. At least they were looking for the Messiah to come. Although when he did come, they rejected him, but at least they were looking for him coming. Gentiles weren't. Gentiles didn't have a Messiah. They didn't have a Christ to come. There was no anointed one to come for them as far as they were concerned. They were without Christ. At one time, we were without Christ also. And we weren't looking for him either. And then verse 12, being aliened from the commonwealth of Israel. As Gentiles, we were not counted as part of God's people. All the benefits and promises belonged only to the community of God's covenant people of which we were not a part <laughs> Verse 12 again. And strangers from the covenants of promise. 
Israel was the only nation on earth that God ever made a covenant with. Ever. Just one nation did he make a covenant with. In fact, he made several covenants with them. The Abrahamic covenant. Way, way back in Genesis, where God promised Abraham that in him and through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The Palestinian covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Davidic covenant where God promised that one would sit on David's throne forever, who would be David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all these covenants were made only to Israel. We were not part of that. We were not included. Having no hope. It gets worse. Having no hope. The Gentiles' gods had no answers. There was no hope in them. They ruled by fear. They were vindictive. They were capricious. There was a dread with their gods. And they provided no answers. No answers to life, no answers to death. And here's the reality. The God that we served, which was the God of this world, the devil, whether we knew it or not, he had no answers for us. There was no hope for us. There was no answers in that. Sure there wasn't. In verse 12, and without God in this world, Lots of gods, but no God. When Paul was in Athens in Acts 17, he was amazed at how many gods was worshipped. They had all these plinths with their gods on them, and then he came to one plinth that had no god on it, but just assigned to the unknown god in case they left one out. That's how frightened they were of, of the gods. They better not leave one out, so we'd put a plinth to the unknown god. And Paul says... To that God, let me introduce you to him, the one you don't know, the true and the living God. Hmm. So Paul is reminding us, as he reminded them, that that was the bowl we were baked in. And we were not in a good position before God. But verse 13, but now, but now, it's like verse 4 where it says, but God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Huh. We were once afar off, as far as you possibly could be off, but now we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me. That on the cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. Glory to God. But now, but now, verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one, both one, Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now, what does that mean, has broken down the middle wall of separation? Paul here is alluding to a couple of things. 
He's thinking about the temple where the Jews worshipped. And it was full of separation. When you went to the temple, there was various courts around the temple. And the first one you came to, and you had to climb up to it, was the court of the Gentiles. So any Gentile could have went into that court. And that would be the place where the Jews should have been a witness to those Gentiles. They should have been the witness to them in that court. But instead, it became like a bazaar. That's the place where Jesus made a whip of cords and kicked over the money changers' tables and drove them out. He says, you've made a den of thieves. They should have been a, a holy, sanctified witness to those Gentiles. And instead, there were crooks and hooks. And Jesus chased them out of it. But that's as far as any Gentile could go. Now, beyond the court of the Gentiles, you climb 14 steps, and then there was a, a clearing, and then there was a wall, a five-foot wall. And they could not go beyond that. Beyond that was the court of the woman. But on that particular wall was an inscription. And they have found these, archaeologists have found several of these in what was used to be Herod's temple. The inscriptions read, No foreigner is to enter within the balustrade and embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death, which follows. So to cross that wall and to go any further for a Gentile was on pain of death. So that was a great wall of separation. And they understood that. They knew that. And it was made clear to them. But then beyond that was the court of the woman. And the court of the woman was open not just to the woman of Israel, but to any male of Israel. The court of the woman, by the way, was where, remember Jesus, remember dealt with the woman caught in the act of adultery? That's where they trailed her right into and threw her at his feet. And it was a big, big court. Lots of people would be there. But only women and only male Jews could go there. And then beyond that again was another court, the court of the Israelites or the court of the men of Israel. And only Jewish men, males, could go into that court. Women couldn't go there. That's as far as the women could go their court. But they see again another separation. And then that other court. And then beyond that court was the court of the priests. And only, only those of the tribe of Levi, not just any male Jew, but only those of the tribe of Levi could go in and serve in that court. And then beyond that was the holy place and the most holy place, which was divided again, another wall of separation, only it was a big, thick curtain. And only behind that curtain, there was the tabernacle, there was the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubims, where the glory of God was. And only the high priest, and only once a year, could he go in there, and he had to have an atonement for himself and his family, and then he could go in there, and only once a year. So 
all, I'm telling you this for this reason. See the many times of separation there was, not just even for the Gentiles, but for the, even for the Jews. But when Jesus came, he came to destroy all of those walls of separation. All of those dividing walls were to fall. So they were. But the biggest, the biggest wall was not a one that was physical. The biggest wall was all those laws and ordinances that was against. This is verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. The Mosaic law, all those laws and ordinances which was against us, that neither they or we could actually keep. They were too great and it condemned us. And all of that, all of it was abolished through Christ's death on the cross. Do you remember that veil in the temple, what happened when Jesus died on that cross? You remember how it was rent from top to bottom, signifying that the way into the holiest of holies was open? The way into his presence was open. All those barriers had dropped. And Paul is telling them, no more barriers, no more separation. Christ has made us one. Glory to God. This is what he's getting at. There's so many barriers, so many points of separation. In verse 15, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, his body that is, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, these animosities, these differences. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. Verse 18, for through him we have access, both we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and members of the household of God. So Christ broke down the barriers between the Jews and the Gentile believers. Barriers between God and man himself and barriers between us and our fellow believers. The church is riven with barriers. It really, really is. We have our denominations, we have our traditions, we have our different styles of worship, our different styles of governance. And often we allow all of those to come between us and them. And if we're not careful, we can get puffed up with pride and think our style is the best. Our way of doing it is the best way. Not like them. Our way is the best. And that's not right. We have set up an artificial barrier. Because whether they do it differently than us, whether we do it different from them, we are one in Christ. And that's what Christ came to do, to make us one. So this morning, around this town, there are several church buildings, and it's full of believers like us all meeting. And they have sung different songs this morning, and they're preaching different sermons, and they have different systems of government and of all of that. But listen, all of that doesn't mean a thing, really, because we're one in Christ. And we get to heaven, there'll be none of that. <laughs> so we really need to understand what Paul is getting out of here. Now, I'm not advocating some kind of ecumenical unity 
that cares nothing for rightly dividing the word of truth, that accepts every and any type of profession of faith, it must have fundamental truths of the gospel as its basis. And there are basic fundamental truths. And if we accept those, and through those we have accepted Christ, then you're my brother, you're my sister. Now they may come into this church and they may be horrified that we sing something ten times. We may go to their church and they sing it once and that's it. And we think, once? Are you serious? Only once? But you see how that can cause divisions that shouldn't really be. Now God has allowed us to have different styles. He's not after uniformity. He's after unity. You can have unity without uniformity. Because different styles suits different personalities. But God doesn't want us all in uniformity, forced into some kind of false unity. No. No. But we have a unity in Christ. Verse 20 and 22. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. Christ is our foundation too. But the cornerstone is the stone that the rest of the building takes its levels from. So that it's square and built right and level. And Christ is the chief cornerstone. And if we take our levels from him, if we take our line from him, then that'll keep us straight. He's also the capstone. You know what a capstone is? You see it many times in arches. That middle stone that holds up the arch. You take that out, everything falls down. So he's our capstone as well. Take Christ out of the church, it'll all fall down. It'll be rubble. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built up together for a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. So God is taking living stones, as we're called, Peter calls them. He's taking us as living stones, and he's building up a holy temple for him to dwell in. And every person that gets saved and born again of God's Spirit becomes one of those stones that he's building with and he's building up a temple for him to dwell in. Glory to God. Hmm. And so there's all kinds of artificial barriers we, we have between us and fellow believers, but there's artificial barriers we have between us and unbelievers. And that's why Paul went to great pains to show them the bull they were baked in. <coughs> because when it comes to sinners, of which we're sinners saved by grace, when it comes to sinners, we may hate their sin. We may hate their lifestyle. We may hate what they do. That sinful act or lifestyle, we may hate that but, but, Jesus, remember, who did he dine with? Who did he 
reach out to the publicans and sinners, the most hated in in society, the the tax collectors. The tax collectors are the most despised people in Israel. And Jesus went to their homes and ate with them. Could you imagine how the Jews felt about that? Zacchaeus, come down, not tree. Today, I must have batted your house. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, everybody hated? Yes, him. Because he had to reach him. He had to reach him. And so there's sinners out there, and you may not like what they do and how they live, and I may not like it either, but we've got to try to reach them somehow. We've got to show some grace when you meet them individually. Several years ago, I can say this now to you. Several years ago, I got a phone call from a young man way up from the North Coast. He wanted to meet with me. Never met him before, never seen him before, didn't know who he was. He says, I need to talk to you, Pastor. I've got a problem. And I met him. I met him up at the train. He came to the train. I met him at the train station in Moira. For an hour and a half, he sat in my car and he poured his heart out. He says, I am gay and I hate it. I hate it. I despise myself. But I'm trapped. I've tried many times to stop it, but I'm trapped. Please help me. Would you pray with me? And we prayed together. We kept in touch for a while. I remember his last phone call. I was was actually in a hospital appointment. He rang me. But he never contacted me again after that. And I don't know what's happened to him. But I tell you that to show you that not everybody that's living in sin likes what they are or wants to be in that. That's only one thing. It could be adultery. It could be fornication. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be whatever. Whatever they're trapped in. And so if they reach out to us, we've got to reach out to them. Here's the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 11. We'll close with this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor reviters, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He could add it 20 more to that list if he wanted to. But listen, but such were some of you. Never forget the bowl you were baked in, but such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. (laughs) He said to the Ephesians, he said to the Corinthians, listen, remember where you came from. Remember the bull you were baked in, the pit from which you were dug, the rock from which you were hewn, whatever terminology you want to use, and remember what Christ has done for you. And what Christ has done for you, he can do for anybody who comes to him believing and trusting in his mercy. Amen? Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.